We are, we have spent the last 13 lectures answering four questions. What does a Christian society say about God? What does a Christian society say about man, about law? And what does a society that's Christian, what do they say about time? And so uh, we're going to move forward here with these questions answered and then move to the idea of institutions. So if Christianity presents us with this unique view of the society's foundations, then we should expect to see Christianity, um, we should be able to see some really important differences between Christianity's view of social institutions and other rival religions' view of these institutions. And so when I speak of institutions, what do you think I'm talking about? Jude? Things like the state, the family, the church. Exactly. State, family, the church. And I would venture to say in some, in some way, although not the same as the other ones, the economy. Okay? Um, so, yeah, those are the institutions. We should expect to see really big differences between Christian society's institutions and pagans' view of these institutions. We should also expect to see these institutions built upon different philosophical foundations. And we should also expect to see some big differences when it comes to the efficiency of these institutions, uh, and depending on whether or not they're found in a Christian society or a pagan society. And so and one of the most important differences between Christian social theory and other humanistic social theories is that in a Christian society, there is absolutely no sovereign human institution ruling over the other institutions. Does that make sense? So that's the difference. There's no human institution in a Christian society that has the final authority to rule over the other institutions absolutely. Why is that? Why do you think, why do you think biblical, the biblical structure of institutions, they don't have one of the institutions ruling over the other ones? Jude? Because God's over all of them. God is over all of them? And what would happen if one institution were ruling over all the rest of them. What do you th- what's one thing that could happen? Uh, they might start to think of themselves as God. Right. And why would they do that? Because they are functioning as God to a certain extent. Right. And that's sinful, right? So baseline, even in a Christian society, no human institution can af- uh, escape sin and its effects on the world. And so every institution has people in that institution uh, that are tempted to rule for selfish reasons instead of for the glory of God. So, if, uh, so every institution has the potential, if given absolute authority, to oppress all of the other institutions and to oppress and sin against the individuals in those institutions. Right? And it's only Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can claim total sovereignty in time and on earth. Um, It's only him, because he is the only link between man and God. The family is not a link between man and God, neither is the church, neither is the state. And uh, it's not the pronouncements of committees, it's not bureaucrats or religious leaders uh, that give, uh, that have the final authority for man to live. It's God's word, that's the final authority for man. So the source of social order is God. In particular, it's the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who was sent to man to be a paraclete, to be a helper, to be an advocate to the church. 
and the Holy Spirit came to guide men into all truth. Here's John 16, 13. It's Jesus talking about the Spirit. He says, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. Right, so uh, the Spirit of God. What's that? What verse is that? Uh, John sixteen thirteen. And we know from Second Corinthians that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. liberty. Exactly, and it is God's sovereign power over the creation that holds everything together. And we know that the relationship between God's law and God's external blessings. That's going to guarantee that the social order for these societies are going to be preserved as they conform themselves to God's law. All right, so we have God's promises that uh, he is going to preserve our society if we follow him and if we uh, follow the covenant and obey his law. And so biblical social theory affirms the idea of a de- decentralized system of competing and ideally cooperating institutions. So that means the church, the family, and the state are, uh, are de- it's decentralized. That means they're all on equal playing fields, right? Uh, they cooperate with each other for the running of a society. And so no single institution needs to be the only one that's providing social order to a society, right? Not the family, not the church, not the state by themselves. And as we've learned from the past, I mean, no single institution can do it anyway, right? If any of y'all read any history over the past 2,000 years, we have seen if the church ran everything or the family ran everything, and now we view the state running everything, does it ever work out? No, it never works out. No, because that model is against the biblical order of decentralized power and cooperation between the institutions. And because that's happening, God is not going to bless it. God is not going to bless a society that has one of these institutions ruling over the other ones. Freedom and order and prosperity and blessing are going to happen only when people in a society are willing to work towards reconstructing all of their social institutions according to the Bible. So when we see a social theory that has a pyramid structure uh, of institutions with one singular institution at the top, maybe I can write it, write it down. So we have this pyramid, all right? Let's say states up here. We'll just put, put them up there. And then you have church, family, I'm just going to put this in. This will this will tell us what all we need to know. Satan. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kingdom of Satan. Anytime you see a pyramid structure of institutions, it is the kingdom of Satan. Switch it around. Put the church up here. And the state down here. Same thing. Satan. Same thing with the family. That's happened too, where tribalism and leaders of tribes ran the government and ran the church. Satan. Right. No, so that right now, the pyramid 
this is this is bad. Wrong wrong thing. Satan. You can write that chart down and that'll pretty much cover my lecture for today. So, yeah, so the, the pyramid structure is basic to any pagan society. Every pagan society has a pyramid structure. Um, they will always have one singular institution at the top of the hierarchy chain, and the other institutions have to submit to it. Uh, the pyramid structure is also inside of socialism and communism. It puts men at the bottom of the pyramid. Just let's do this. And it puts the state at the top. Yeah, mankind, men, women, sure. Yeah, so yeah, so this is paganism right here. So what does, uh, what kind of structure does the Bible endorse? Well, the, the Bible endorses the idea of multiple sovereignties and multiple institutions that have authority. So in a Christian social order, human institutions have all, have, all have a certain amount of sovereignty, but all of their sovereignty is limited, and, and it's derived from someone else. Who's that someone else? God. So in a sense, it won't exactly look, I guess it wouldn't look like a pyramid in one sense. It would be God at the top. Actually, and the pyramid wouldn't work at all. We have three institutions to work with. So, God. So we go just church, family, state, and God's word would mediate between all of these. Right? Let me let me move this podium out of the way so all y'all can see. So there you go. So, <clears throat> so the Bible says that all men are to be responsible under God. Men are never to be autonomous under God. Now, I have to mention, there are, there are people in every one of these institutions, all right? So, duh. But I'm saying individual men have to be responsible to God in their specific institution. Now, Christians are involved... We're in all three of these institutions in some sense, right? So we are in the, the family. We are operating as individuals following the Lord in the family. We're individuals operating in the church uh, according to households and things. And then the state, uh, we are all citizens of our nation. We're citizens of the state of Louisiana. We're citizens of the parish, whatever parish you live in. And we're all citizens of our towns and neighborhoods. So we all are to obey God inside of the different lanes that these institutions give to us, right? And, and no single institution is above all the other ones. They're all equal, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, the Bible says that all men are to be responsible unto God. Men are never to be autonomous under God. Men can't be autonomous. We can't be autonomous under God. That's impossible. And it's the same with the institutions. So neither one, the state, the church, nor the family, nor the many. Remember I mentioned the one and the many a few weeks back? Uh, individual men, individual women. Uh, <clears throat> neither one have the right to claim ultimate sovereignty. So neither collectivism 
or individualism have the right to claim ultimate sovereignty. So what the Bible gives us instead of collectivism and individualism is covenantalism. Covenantalism. So covenantalism is institutions and individual people under God and his laws with the five-point covenantal model. Y'all remember those? Theos, transcendence, eminence, hierarchy, ethics, oaths, and succession. Okay, so with all of this in mind, what we're going to do for uh, at least the next few weeks in this class is, is we're going to look at all four social institutions. Okay, we're going to look at the church, the family, the state, even though I don't really... I really don't count this one as an institution, but it's still worth looking at in, under the lens of an institution, the economy, okay? So we're going to look at all four of these institutions, and we're going to see, uh, we'll see what a Christian society says about all of these, okay? So today we're going to start with the family, okay? So the family. In the beginning, when God created man, man and woman uh, were created as a team, and their job, what was their job? What were they supposed to do? They were put on this earth. It was mentioned, if you were at uh, Sunday school just yesterday, it was mentioned. Have dominion. Have dominion, right. Uh, to subdue the earth to the glory of God. Oh, okay. So this is the task of dominion. And so it's absolutely basic to the very being of man to work at this task. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, every man and woman has this desire to take dominion in some way. It's just a matter of who you're taking dominion for, yourself or, or for the Lord. And so as a punishment for Adam's rebellion, God didn't allow man to completely fulfill this assignment, right? And because of that, there will be a longing and a feeling of powerlessness in the minds of every rebel against God because they will not be able to do this assignment, even though God has put this desire in every single man, whether they're a Christian, whether they're not a Christian. And so Adam was created first, and he was first given the task of naming and classifying the animals before he was given a wife. And when Adam completed this assignment, God gave him his wife, Eve. And this shows us something very important. This shows us that God gives a woman to a man in order to help him fulfill his calling before God. She helps him to fulfill the dominion mandate. Without her, neither, neither person will be able to fulfill this mandate. And Paul says it like this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. He says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And so when, they, when they're together in covenant before God with one another, they function as a unit uh, under God. And if we look a couple of verses later in 1 Corinthians 11 to... Um, to verse 11 and 12, it says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. So what's he saying here? So he's saying originally the woman was made for man, but in the end, 
all people come from both man and woman, right? So without the woman, there would not be any men, right? So the woman doesn't have a totally like losing stake in this, right? So she's very important to the dominion mandate, so important. But we can see here clearly that there's a hierarchy, right? There's a hierarchy in the family. That's point two of the covenant model. So God is absolutely sovereign over both men and women, but he establishes his chain of command through the husband, through the man. So we can, so family, so God, I guess I could put Jesus, yeah, man, woman. That's the hierarchical chain here. We'll get to that in just a second. Yeah. And so, uh, God is absolutely sovereign over both man and woman. And he establishes his command through the husband. And so Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. He says, uh, actually, I'm sorry, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives... Anytime I see ye in the Old Testament, in the King James, I just translate it to y'all because that's what it means. Likewise, y'all wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Okay, and Peter also says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters y'all are, as long as y'all do well and are not afraid with any amazement or terror. So, as and husbands owe their wives wise and righteous judgment in the household, and they owe their wives love. So what does the wife owe the husband? We'll review it real quick. Um, submission. submission, yeah. And what does the husband owe the wife? Respect. Uh, love, and she trusts that he will make righteous decisions for her and for the family. And Peter says this in the next verse, 1 Peter 3, 7. Mm-hmm says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. So we've got to give honor to our wives too, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Okay, a lot to say there. Um, but what is the gist of it? Husbands, we owe our wives, you men, you owe your future wives, honor as into the weaker vessels. And if you don't honor your wife, uh, Peter says that you are in danger of your prayers not being heard by God. That's what he's saying here. So we have to be careful of that. Uh, Paul also writes a lot about the husband and wife relationship, and he compares this relationship with Jesus' love for his church and the responsibility of the church uh, to the one who loves her. And I'm going to go to Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 28. Ephesians 5, to 28. I'll read it. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So that, those are the wives' responsibilities. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands. 
then he explains this hierarchy for the husband is the head of the wife. Just substitute husband-wife here, right? Uh, in Greek, you can substitute man-woman, husband-wife. So they're interchangeable uh, to some degree. Uh, and then it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Okay, so if Paul had to tell the Ephesian Christians, uh, particularly the wives, to submit to their husbands and Christian husbands to love their wives, what do you think was happening in that Ephesian church? Or maybe wasn't happening. Those things were not happening in the Ephesian church. Right? Wives were not submitting to husbands, and husbands were not uh, loving wives. Okay? Well, God, we have, we have a whole trinity thing here. Yeah. Let's see if I can do this right. I'm about to do like a, looks like a little mini pyramid. Father, Son. So it's like a clover. And Jesus is Son incarnate, right? Huh? Jesus is Son incarnate. HP. Holy, oh, HP. <laughs> I'm thinking Greek spirit, sorry. Holy Spirit. Yeah, so... So, yeah, this, this, this board's going to get a whole lot more complicated if I try to lay out the hierarchical structure of all of this. But there is a submission here. The son, uh, the son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit, in some sense, submits to the Son. The, whole, the Father gives uh, glory to the Son. The Father gives glory to the Holy Spirit. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. It turns into quite a big hierarchy chart here. Uh, well, for my illustration, it is in relation to us, he is. So I would have to rewrite this. I have to go son, then man, then woman, and then, you know, then that whole thing. And that's just in the family. Then I'll have to branch off and do church and state, and it's too much right now. So, yes, sir. Um, for the first Corinthians thing, he says, he, are, he says for the man is not of the, uh, the woman. What is that? What was that verse again? Uh, let, me jump, let me get back to it. That's First uh, Corinthians. Uh, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so this wasn't happening in the Ephesian church. And there were probably some married couples who were disobeying the Lord in all of this. And we shouldn't be surprised to see this everywhere in non-Christian marriages. Do you think non-Christian marriages have really hardly any concept of hierarchy inside of it? No, there's probably more of a struggle to get for who gets to be boss. In the household, and that's one of the do what? Sporting. They're sport. Well, yeah, they might be boxing instead of sporting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So usually, even with even in the curse, like God says that the woman is going to try to usurp the man uh, in in their rebellion. So the whole hierarchy of the family gets overturned in non-Christian marriages. Okay, but the point is is there's a hierarchy present in marriage. And if the hierarchy gets mixed up, there probably won't be much sporting. So, yeah. So God gave Adam a strict command, right, to not eat uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, And the serpent, who did the serpent go to first to try to get this revolution started? Did he go to the man? Went to the woman. Why do you think he went to the woman? Because her spirit's weaker? Well, I mean, uh, it was said that she is the weaker vessel. And it turns out she she was the one that fell for the serpent's lies, and she ate the fruit, 
Then Adam ate, right? So he's, he's not uh, without any blame in this, of course. But Satan knew exactly what he was doing when he began this revolution against God. He knew that the best way to start this revolution was to undermine the hierarchy of the family. Let's turn this family hierarchy upside down. And so he cut the chain of command at the weakest link, which was the woman. And Peter said that the woman was the weaker vessel. And Paul said that the woman was deceived by the serpent. Not Adam. Adam wasn't deceived. He still ate like a dummy, but he wasn't deceived, right? Adam was the stronger link. And so the family hierarchy is man to woman. And then, as Nicholas said earlier, we go to children. See if I can even write like this, this low on the board. I might have to get this way. Children. All right. So, is children over here beside the woman? No. Children below. Below your parents. Right. There's some families that try to turn that upside down, too. Hmm? Really? Yep. Maybe not in the United States, but around other parts of the world, that's, that's, that happens. So, yeah, so the children are under their parents as far as the hierarchy is concerned. So Paul repeats what he has said before in the letter to the Colossians. He said this in Colossians 3, verse 18 to 21. He says what he said in Ephesians here again. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Okay, so this chain of command, what is this chain of command designed to do? Well, it's designed to reflect God's relationship to the creation, which reflects this whole hierarchy of functions, Okay but without any superiority or inferiority of being, okay? And that means that the Christian view of marriage maintains both man and woman distinct without confusing both of them. Now, this is really, really important to say, especially in the time that we live in. I'll say this. Ready? Take notes. Functional subordination does not imply inferiority. Functional subordination does not imply inferiority. Can anyone take a crack at what I just said and explain it in your own words? What am I saying by this? Nicholas? Uh, like the, 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 the hierarchy doesn't show that women are less equal than men and men are less equal than women. Uh, they're equal, but they have different roles. Exactly. You got it. Nailed it. Yeah, so wives submitting to husbands does not mean that wives are inferior to husbands. It does not mean that wives are less valuable. Women are less valuable than men or less intelligent than men. No, I've, I know of many women who are more intelligent than many men that I know. That, that's not even the issue here. Women are not ethically, ethnically inferior to men, okay? Women are not inferior in that sense, okay? So, <clears throat> what this hierarchy really means instead of that, it means that mankind is a collective unit, 
That means it's one unit made up of many different parts, many different kinds of people. And so because men and women are different, there's no way that they can have functional equality between each other, right? Why is that? They were designed for different purposes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they were designed differently. They have different assignments. They have different callings. And for mankind to fulfill the terms and conditions of the dominion mandate, men have to acknowledge and respect the differences that God has built into men and women. Okay? Men are functionally superior to their wives in the same way that Christ is superior over the church. Notice I said functionally, not ethically. Okay? That's, there's a difference. Men are superior in the fact that they have been placed higher up in the hierarchical structure inside of the assignment of the dominion mandate. Okay? Does it mean that women are less important? Does it mean that women are less than men? That's not the point. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to be in charge. You cannot have two people with the same level of hierarchy in charge and for the unit to actually do what it's supposed to do. Somebody has to be in charge. Okay? And so this family unit and the hierarchical structure that it's in has been designed by God, and the family is designed to extend God's visible sovereignty over the entire earth. And it is the family that is the chief agency of dominion. Okay? The church does function in, in, uh, in a limited dominion aspect. It actually, just, it does the function of equipping the family. And the state, what does the state do? It protects the family. Yeah, exactly. So the family, though, that is the chief agency of dominion. All right? So we've talked about man, woman. Let's talk about children for a little bit. So this is probably, this is what y'all are most familiar with, since you guys are still children in some sense. Yes, I know. Shocking. So what does the Bible say about you guys? What does the Bible say about children? Well, Psalm 127 Verses 3 through 5 says this. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 says this. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. That's a good thing, right? And the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Huh? Oh, no. You shoot them out. They hit their target. And you can go and get the arrow back out and put them back in your quiver, right? So, I don't know. The, the analogy probably breaks down at some point. But what do arrows do? They're an offensive weapon, right? With a, coupled with a bow, you can win wars. Coupled with a bow, you can really conquer and take dominion over the earth, right? Um, and so the enemies in the gate. Go, Jeremy. Right. Believe me, when you're like 18, 20 years old, your parents may very well be saying that. Nicholas, boom, get out of here. Take all your stuff with you. Yeah. Get, pack your stuff in your car. Get out. <laughs> so, at the end of this verse, it says this, but they shall speak with the enemies at the gate. The children are going to do that. So, who are the enemies at the gate? Well, the enemies in the gate are opponents who have come before the judges of the city who in Old Testament times sat at the gate. And they did that to bring charges against people. This is a judicial act. So men with large families 
have confidence in themselves, so they're not afraid of those enemies. Right? So this seems to tell us, there's a really cool principle here. Uh, it tells us that, self, that the self-discipline that it takes in being the head of a large family carries over into other relationships. Does that make sense? Uh, being the head of a large family, the, the self-discipline that involves carries over to other relationships. So large families produce heads of households who are better fit to lead in the community and whatever they're called to do. So as a matter of fact, one of the requirements for holding the office of elder or deacon in the church is for a man to be married. That's one of the requirements. And those requirements can be found in 1 Timothy 3. He is to rule over his household well. Well, if it's just him, I guess technically that's a household. But how easy is it to rule over if it's just you? Pretty easy. Unless, well, unless you don't have much self-control, I guess. So, but he is to rule over his household well. That implies a family. That implies people under him in this hierarchy. So the family is a training ground for leadership in the church. And one of the biggest failures of almost all denominations and local churches is the unwillingness of church authorities to write into their church handbooks and constitutions the guidelines that define what a successful rule over a family looks like. That's a huge indictment against the modern church. Do we have it in ours? Do what? We do, yes. So modern churches, not ours, thank God, uh, modern churches these days place a lot of emphasis on where a man went to college or where he went to seminary. They may place emphasis on whether he can raise a lot of money for whatever building projects or campaigns or things to make money with, uh, to raise money with for the church. Can he do that well? Can he sell uh, and, and get donations and these sorts of things? Or can he preach with a gripping sermon? Can he preach well uh, as far as um, does he have rhetorical flourish? Can he uh, grip an audience with his speaking? You know, that's what a lot of modern churches put emphasis on when they're hiring an elder or they're calling a pastor or a leader. But if you notice, if you go to 1 Timothy 3, the Bible puts little or no emphasis on any of these factors. It puts emphasis on what? The leader's abilities as who? The head of a household. Yeah, so in talking about children, we have to understand that children are a tool of dominion. Did you know that? We have the law as a tool of dominion. We have being made in God's image as a tool of dominion. And guess what? You guys are tools of dominion. I was joking with y'all. Not tools. Yeah, so parents are to sacrifice for them when the children are young. Children are to be instructed carefully and continually in the law of God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, says it like this, And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So, the time parents that invest in training children in God's law, to me, is time well spent. It's a good investment. Each of your parents have sacrificed for you to be here, for instance. This is one way they have sacrificed. 
because each of them either uh, write a check or sacrifice in some other way for y'all to be here. This is an investment. And the reason it's investments because you guys are going to be the ones that are going to be the next generation of godly, dominion-minded people who will inevitably create uh, dominion-minded families. And Proverbs 22.6 says this. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's why we're training you now. That's why your parents have spent your entire life training you. Because when you're older, God willing, you're not going to depart from this. And you're going to be an obedient servant and citizen of God's kingdom. And you'll act as such. Okay, so now all of these scriptures, they lead us to a very important conclusion about children. And it's this. The education of the children is the moral responsibility of the state. No, no, sorry. No, it's the moral responsibility of who? The family. In particular, the Uh, parents. parents. Yeah, the parents of those children. Right. Education is the responsibility of the parents. Okay, so parents are the ones who have the responsibility to decide whether their children will be taught the truth or whether they'll be taught a lie. They're responsible before God for the rearing of their children. And they're responsible for what worldview their children are going to be educated in. This is why it's a huge responsibility to bring children into the world. It is not a light thing to bring a child into this world. You have huge responsibilities if you do that. What's so funny? All right, I need y'all to pay attention. Come on, guys. We're almost done. All right, so <clears throat> whose responsibility is it again? The parents. The parents, right. And who thinks it's their responsibility these days? The state, the state right. The modern state has shown us that they think it's their responsibility to train children. This is the means by which the modern state has assumed the position of God on earth. Uh, the government schools have become the established religion of every nation on this earth. And what is their religion called? Statism. There's a bunch of names, but there's statism, humanism, socialism, a bunch of isms. Yeah, and in particular, it's humanism. What is humanism at its core? Who are they worshiping humanism? Humans. Humans themselves. It's the worship of man. Um, and, and this religion called humanism rests on this institutional foundation. It's that the tax-supported, the state-regulated, supposedly neutral, deeply religious humanist school system. That's the foundation upon which the religion of humanism stands on. If they would not have a school system or an indoctrination program, uh, if they would not have an established church, uh, they would not exist. So that's why they pour so much money and resources into the government school system, right? And they, and, and they, they trick Christians into sending their kids there because they say that they are neutral. They are morally neutral. Now, there's no such thing as neutrality, right? You're, you're always going to teach a law. You're always going to teach religion. You're always going to teach people what God to worship. And... Uh, Because of this neutrality, this trick of neutrality, the government school, they have almost completely stamped out Christianity and the law of God by means of this neutrality myth. And so the state forces Christians. Now, granted, I pay 
to send my kids here, right? But guess what? I also have to pay for the sending of other kids to the government school. How do I pay for that? Through what? Through taxes, right? Do I have a choice whether to pay these taxes or not? No. So I'm one Christian of many that are being forced to not only pay for my children's education, but I have to pay for other people's children's education, right? And, 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 it's, and it's really terrible because I have to finance schools that teach a religion that's entirely different than mine. Uh, it's it, this rival religion of humanism. So the state has also tried to regulate Christian and independently financed schools through the guise of taking federal grants to build more buildings and programs for the up-and-coming private school. So what, am I, what do I say about that? Well, uh, private schools can get duped into having to uh, teach what the government wants them to teach by taking money from them. Let's say, you know, let's say we have a small little private school, but, you know, we want to build a football program. But we don't want to wait the, the 10 or the 20 years it may take to raise the amount of money to build the proper facilities and get the right coaches and all of these things. So a quicker way to do it would be to get this, there's a government grant out there that we can apply for and fill out. And the government would be glad to give us money, you know, a, a couple of million dollars to build the necessary facilities that it takes yeah. to do that now. Huh? That's small. That's small stuff. Yeah. I'm just throwing a number out. I mean, yeah, this will be close to a million, just this building. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm keeping the number small, 10 million. So, so, okay, well, great, we'll take the money. But, you know, anytime you take money, from, it's not just a gift with no strings. The government basically, they own you at that point because you took money from them. And if you don't do what they say, they can easily ask for that money back. That's what you agree to in the contract, right? And so the private schools do this. They uh, basically sell their birthright for a bowl of stew. And the parents have given away the authority that they had to educate their children to the kingdom of darkness when parents still send those kids to the schools that take the government money. And eventually they'll have to answer to God for that. So at every point, the state has substituted uh, professional bureaucrats who are virtually impossible for parents to remove from authority while it has taken parents out of the seats of power in setting curriculum and setting other standards for the school. And the modern state, who thinks it's the Messiah, they think they're Jesus, uh, they think they can save the world, they have used this tax-supported government school system as the primary means of stealing children from God. They t and they do this by taking them out of the control of the parents. Actually, the parents just kind of let them have it. Right. So and you hear, you know, you hear this everywhere, especially in church. You hear Christians complaining about taxes all the time. Right. They complain all the time about the crazy amount of taxes they have to pay. But at the same time, many of them have no problem sending their kids to the state schools. They have abandoned their financial responsibilities and they say, let the state finance my children's educations. Let the other taxpayers pay for it. And, of course, they have abandoned with that all of the uh, aspects, other aspects of their teaching responsibilities. Your parents are your primary teachers of God to you. Not the pastors, not, the, not me as one of your teachers. No, your parents are. 
right? And many parents who have sent their kids off to government schools have pretty much abdicated all of their teaching responsibilities to the state. And they have turned the production of citizens over the, to these tax-financed state-ran schools. And the priests of the religion of humanism, who are the priests of the religion of humanism in the public schools? Doctors. The teachers. teachers. Yeah, the teachers. Yeah, the teachers of this religion of humanism, have, they've been able to get the support of the past few generations of Christian parents who have decided that oh, it'd be easier to transfer the responsibility for educating my children to the bureaucrats who have been hired by the state. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand me here. Parents do have to delegate some aspects of their responsibilities to educate to someone else. Your parents have done that to some degree here, right? Uh, are you sitting in front of your parents all day and they're teaching you all these things? No, I am. I'm not your dad. But I have, well, maybe y'all, I don't know. But not right now. You're in front of me. So, yeah, there has to be some delegation going on. Um, <clears throat> few parents have the time and the skills that are necessary to provide their children's educations at home all the way from pre-K to 12th grade. I mean, your parents can't learn Greek, geometry, systematic theology, history, theology, all of these things. Uh, you think they all have the time to learn all of these things at an expert level? Some people have that gift and that ability. Most don't, and that's okay. I don't even have time to learn all of that. That's why through a division of labor, through hiring different teachers, we can all uh, be specialists in specific fields to be able to split the responsibility. Okay? I'm not a biology teacher. I'm not a physical science teacher. Mr. Jordan is. He dedicates his time and skills to, to learning that subject. I've dedicated my time and skills to learning other subjects. Your parents have done the same thing in the callings that they have, but they are still the primary uh, educators and teachers in your life of the things of God. Okay? And so <clears throat> parents hire specialists in their fields, in their respective fields, to teach their children along the lines of what parents want in the education of their children. I'm just teaching you what your mom and dad want you to know. Okay, that's what I'm doing. I don't, teach you, I don't teach you anything outside of what your mom and dad sent you here for. Okay, and, and a Christian school like this one, for instance, is simply an extension of this principle. It's the principle of in loco parentis. That's Latin for in the place of the parent. That's what CCA is when you're here. They act, we act in the place of the parent, at least in educating you while you're here. Okay, so where the teacher acts in the place of the parent to teach certain curricula established by the parents, and it's only at the times established by them, okay? The government school doesn't do this. The government school does not care what parents want their, their kids to know. They're going to teach them what the state wants them to know, okay? And so Christ Church Academy, on the other hand, is a school where, where several parents, like all of your parents, we all came together at one point in time to hire a group of experts and tutors in different fields in order to give you an education. Okay? Yes? Um, do you think it could also be counted as the state schooling kids with movies? I'm sorry, what was that? Do you think it could also be counted as the state schooling kids with movies and TV shows? Sure. Do you think they're all on the same team? Yes. I think so, yeah. 
Yeah, so, I mean, um, there are all sorts of inroads, relationships between Disney and MGM and Paramount. They all have, uh, are connected to, uh, to the state in some way. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think they've all teamed up together to try to teach the world, teach the children a certain worldview. Right, and they're all acting in that way. Because if you are not on God's team learning a Christian worldview, then what worldview are you learning? The world's. Satan's, right? It's back to that pyramid thing again. Yeah, So, and they're all united in trying to do that. So yeah, I definitely think those things are connected for sure. Um, <clears throat> what else here? Yeah, I was explaining how CCA works with your parents. Well, okay, CCA is all these several parents that come together and they hire a group of experts to teach in different fields in, in order to help you get an education. And because several parents are making the investment monetarily, the costs of education are shared, okay? You don't have to pay me. Your parents don't have to pay me by, your, by themselves what my entire salary is for the year to teach you right? It's a lot of money for one family to pay. But because many parents are paying into it, the costs are shared and the price to educate you is cheaper. Okay. But, but get this, CCA is not an, uh, it's not institutionally sovereign over you. I don't have sovereignty over you. Okay. In, in the, in the field of the family. Okay. Now I am a pastor at the church. I do have some sphere of sovereignty in other lanes, but not in this one. Okay. Your parents uh, have that sovereignty over you. Uh, and since sovereignty must bear the responsibility of paying the costs, children's education, they must be financed by the parents. And if it's financed by anybody else, then the person or the institution that's paying the bill, they're going to have the sovereignty. Does that make sense? Whoever pays the bill has the authority, right? And... Uh, <clears throat> And it will take the education of children outside of the institution that God has set for it, the family. So if, the, if taxpayers or the state foots the bill for children's education, who is the sovereign in that scenario? The state. They pay the bill, right? And they basically take an education out of the family. And the family is where God says education belongs. And uh, Exodus 20, verse 12, in speaking about children says that children are to honor their parents, for it is the first promise that is attached to a commandment. What's that, what's that promise? Anybody quote it from memory? Do what? That you may live long in the land. Yeah, that your, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's right. So parents owe their children food, shelter, and care. But the children, they also owe something. What do you owe to your parents? Huh? Obedience, respect, respect honor. honor. Yeah, that's part of that commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, and this eventually means, as they get older, support financially. You guys have a responsibility when you're older to support, support you your old family. Well, they support you now. You have a responsibility to help support them later. Okay? And so there are mutual obligations that are based on the covenantal bonds of the family. And so no one in the transaction, either parent or child, is to become an endless giver. Okay? It, it's not a one-way street. 
and no one is to become an endless recipient. But the state doesn't operate this way. The, the modern state has intervened in this process as well. The state promises, what happens when you're probably, you know, getting your 20 years old, 21, 22? Are your parents going to be supporting you? Goodness, I hope not. I hope they're not going to be supporting you by then. But, right. You don't want to be 30 and living in your, living in your parents' extra bedroom, right? Playing Xbox all day. You don't want to do that. Not at 30 years old. But what does the state promise? The state promises to be your mommy and daddy from womb to tomb. Beginning your life to the end. You never grow up. You stay in their house all of your life. The state promises to be your new dad. And this, the impersonal bureaucratic state has substituted itself for the place of the father. And its children who will be children throughout their whole lives, they are to remain obedient to Father State all the days of their lives. Big brother. Big brother, exactly. But the Bible tells us that children should grow up, right? And they should begin new families. Genesis one twenty four says this, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. So there shouldn't be any perpetual one-way obligations. Parents are to train their children up to be obedient and to be led and to be trained by them. But they are also to train their children to be independent and ready to leave the nest when the time comes. Um, They are to foster maturity in their children in the hopes that they will not act like children forever. But the state wants lifelong children. They want kids forever. And they want their children's complete obedience forever. The state never wants their kids to move out. Stay in my house. Stay in my basement. I'll pay all your bills. I'll give you can pay. You can play all the Xbox you want. But you'll remain under my rule forever. Don't you dare say you want to leave. Don't you dare want to act. Do what? No first-person shooters. Those are violent. Right, too violent. No, they're fine with the first-person shooters, honestly. So, yeah. So, the state, when it tries to usurp the role of father, becomes a very, very sad imitation of the family. It's a pseudo-family that ultimately takes away human freedom. Because what eventually, what do you say, Mom, Dad, I I think I want to move out. I think it's time for me to get a job. I don't want to play Xbox anymore. I'm 35. I think it's time for me to grow up. Does the state have an easy way for you to get out of that system? Have you been taught to work? Have you been taught to be productive? Have you been taught to take dominion? State's not teaching you that. No, no, no. Here, here's another piece of cake. Please stay, stay. You know? That's a, all right. I guess so. No hope. Right, exactly. Do what? Person of fantasy book, it's like a um, metaphor for like, like the government, like stays. Maybe uh, you might like be thinking. Something like that. Yeah, something like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I can't think of exactly what it is right now. Spider and the fly. No, no, no. I don't think it's that. No. <laughs> but uh, you'll you'll read much more about this, and I think you guys are reading 1984 this year. Y'all will be reading Animal Farm. Animal Farm. You'll hear all about mommy and daddy state and how they, how they could operate in the lives of the people. 
All right. And so uh, we're out of time for now. So next week we'll talk about the family and welfare. Xbox. Yay.